Dispatch 7. Welcome everyone to the 7th of the Dispatch episodes. Uh, today we've got a bit of a mixed bag, but I guess in a way, I kind of joked with a friend, in a way they're all about coexistence. <laughs> but we'll get into that. Uh, so first off, we've got MLK FBI, directed by Sam Pollard. It is a documentary, and it is based on a book by the historian David Garrow. And it's based on, as well, recently declassified files. And it's about the surveillance and harassment that the Federal Bureau of Investigation submitted, subjected Martin Luther King Jr. to. It's pretty fair, it's pretty standard by the, you know, measures of documentary fair, but I am so pleased it's being made. Uh, I'll be honest, I don't mean to brag, honestly, but I was a history nerd. I am still, uh, to be quite frank. Uh, but I did know a fair amount of this in the broad strokes before I watched this. Um, but it helps keep the focus on the subject matter by not doing the traditional like documentary format where you cut away to, you know, people talking in a room and then cut back to like stock footage or archival footage and then just go to someone else. What happens is that when a new speaker comes on, you get a caption of their name somewhere on the screen. Uh, sometimes they showed clips from like movies because a big part of this movie as well, a part of this documentary as well, I should mention, was just the various ways in which, you know, when J. Edgar Hoover was running the FBI, how he was very savvy. He was very good at both self-promotion and spinning everything to make the FBI look as, you know, cool and awesome as possible. Uh, you know, he made them a lot more heroic than they really were. Uh, yeah, just honestly, just the sheer amount of information they managed to cram in, in an hour and 45 minutes, give or take, and not have it just feel completely overwhelming is really, really impressive. Uh, yeah, it also goes into like J. Edgar Hoover, how he was like, he was incredibly paranoid, which I think everyone kind of knows, but it was to an insane degree, honestly. He was very particular about the kind of people that the FBI hired. He wanted, you know, it's not like he personally approved every single one, but generally the ideal FBI agent, as far as Hoover was concerned, was, you know, a white, conservative-leaning man, average height, average build. Actually, maybe a slightly higher than average height, I think they mentioned. And, you know, he... And naturally, he, well, we'll be getting into this when we talk about another movie on the list today, but one of the things he feared above all others was the rise of what he called a black messiah, which was essentially someone gaining such, which was essentially a black political leader gaining a significant following and, you know, public relations power, let's put it that way that they could basically be above the law. And that's basically what he feared, and he saw Martin Luther King as that. It didn't matter the fact that... And it's telling when you look at, like, newsreel footage in the documentary, because, you know, he's always held up as this symbol of nonviolent civil disobedience, and he was. And it didn't stop him from being blamed for riots and civil unrest. People just called him a violent troublemaker anyway. He, he was hauled in on the flimsiest of pretexts. He was subjected to unwarranted surveillance, not even for really, 
not even for really anything having to do with an alleged crime. Uh, they, they harassed him and some of his colleagues on their association with a Jewish lawyer named Levinson because the guy was a former Communist Party member, but Hoover was basically, you're a communist once, you're always a communist. Never mind the fact that that's not a crime under U.S. Constitution. They they wiretapped his house. They wiretapped basically every, everyone that worked with him. They blackmailed him. They wrote threatening letters in a hopes that it would try to get him to kill himself. That's the degree to which they, you know, that's the degree to which they harassed MLK. And even aside from that was also, and I, that's the degree to which they harassed him. And including in that was like threatening to release evidence that he had been, you know, he'd been committing adultery, frankly, he had been, but they were intending to do that. They were intending to spread rumors that he was a homosexual, which remember this was the sixties. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's just say that there weren't a lot of like people who were sympathetic to homosexuality back then. In fact, I'm pretty sure it was considered a mental disorder up until the 1970s. So yeah, basically anything the FBI could do to make MLK's life hell, they did. And, you know, it didn't matter the fact that he had basically broken no laws. They saw him as a threat. So, yeah. And I don't want to get onto this too much because it's only hinted at in the documentary, but there is a very strong theory that James Earl Ray was actually a fall guy and that it was the FBI themselves that killed Dr. King. Now, it's not just me saying that. His own son, Dexter King, believed that, and actually sued, I think it was the city of city of Memphis, to try and get him released because he thought James Earl Ray was just an innocent man who was made an easy suspect for the FBI. Okay. And, it, and also go watch the YouTuber Wendigoon because he has a good video on it as well. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox and get back to the movie. I'm sorry about that. But this is all just the stuff that was made it into this documentary and it was really like moving to see people actually putting this into words and you know not letting the FBI spin this because it's kind of tempting to look at Hoover as a sort of rogue actor who is just you know acting behind the scenes in most of these administrations because you got to remember the guy was in power basically until the 70s and it started during the Great Depression, basically. So it's not Hoover being a rogue actor. It's basically the FBI was molded by him, and they acted as they thought they would. As they thought they were supposed to, sorry. And they say it pretty well was that it's a law enforcement agency that a lot of times acted completely lawlessly. And the documentary good does a good job of addressing that. It kind of skims over MLK's life because, frankly, we've heard a lot of that story a million times if you live in the U.S. And it really cuts right to the heart of the fact that 
he was seen as a threat to the status quo, and the fact that he was doing so in a peaceful way didn't matter. So for all that, <laughs> I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10. All right, next up we have the other top scorer from this week, Judas and the Black Messiah, directed by Shaka King. Starring Lakeith Stanfield as William O'Neill and Daniel Kaluuya as Fred Hampton. We follow the former as he is offered a plea deal after being arrested for car theft and impersonation of an FBI agent. In exchange, he is to infiltrate the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party, and he is to report on the actions of its chairman, Fred Hampton. Uh, you remember how I said in MLK FBI that J. Edgar Hoover feared the rise of what could be called a Black Messiah? Well, Fred Hampton was the other one, which is impressive considering the fact that by the time he died, he was only 21 years old. I am 25 years old, and I feel very insecure right now. <laughs> anyway, all jokes aside, yeah, Fred Hampton is like someone who deserves a lot more recognition in history textbooks than he really does, than he really gets as it is. Anyone who can do what he did by 21 years old is really impressive is worth studying and he's worthy of being he's worthy of admiration. Uh, so yeah, the movie is shot fairly flat in pseudo documentary style. It's got some interesting sequences mixed in uh, as far as like the style goes and some, it's got some great sound design, some period appropriate music. It's like a, a lot of it's like a mix of jazz and disco uh, Kaluuya himself gives an amazing performance, and he really, he really does sell the image of Hampton as an inspiring leader trying to make better life for his community. I will say the only issue is that some of the uh, surviving Black Panthers, not the new Black Panthers, because there's no relation to the original group, but I think one of them said that Fred, while well, he's, you know, still portrayed as very noble and complex in movie the way he's characterized he comes off a bit cold and a lot more standoffish than he was in real life he was apparently very uh outgoing and i wouldn't say easygoing because when you have very strong political opinions it is hard to be easygoing but you know what i mean he was warm to people that he thought were at least not trying to do him any harm uh there's also a group called the crowns in the movie they're sort of an amalgamation of other different activist groups that helped to form what would be called the Rainbow Coalition. Uh, yeah, for those that don't know, the Rainbow Coalition was essentially... Uh, I'm going to... I guarantee you I'm going to fuck up some of these names, but it was the Black Panthers, you know, primarily black or African-American and members. There was the Young Patriots Party, which was actually a group made up of... Uh, poor working-class whites, a lot of them from Appalachia. There was the Brown Berets and the Young Lords, both of whom were Latino and Hispanic groups predominantly. Brown Berets were more Chicano, while the Young Lords were um, Puerto Rican. And I think there was also... There was also an... And I think they also worked with AIM, which is the American Indian Movement as well as a sort of, you know, combined front to, you know, help improve, you know, civil liberties and the economic conditions in their communities. Uh, they kind of jokingly 
said this one scene where O'Neill's talking with, you know, his FBI handler, and he said, wait, you mean to tell me he's got blacks, rednecks, and Puerto Ricans working together? And O'Neill just goes, you know, Fred, he could sell salt to a snail. <laughs> it's a really funny comment that he made. Uh, it's just the general, and yeah, it deals with things like one of the shootouts that the Panthers had with Chicago police, uh, which culminated in the police actually setting fire to the building at one point, just the sheer degree of harassment again that they subjected the Panthers to even before any of them did anything wrong. Uh, just, you know, COINTELPRO as a whole program. Yeah, this this was a really this was a really good movie and it's definitely worth a watch even if, you know, historical movies aren't really your thing. I I will say the only okay, one more issue with Kaluuya playing him is that like I said Hampton died when he was 21, Kaluuya's in his 30s. Not that it you know, he doesn't look old. I'm I'm just saying it's like a little weird that you get a guy in his 30s to play someone who's mostly in his 20s for was mostly in his late teens and early twenties. It's, it's like every fucking high school. It's like every fucking movie set in a high school ever, but I'm not going to complain about it too hard because he, again, he's a great performance and apparently Jaden Smith was supposed to be the original actor. So yeah, no, <laughs> uh, I think the best way I can describe this is how the Lucas brothers, the producers of the movie pitched it. It's the conformist, meets The Departed. It's the same premise as the latter, and it combines the... And it combines that with the themes of split loyalty and political upheaval with the former. So, wonderful movie on a subject that really deserves a lot more attention, and I'm giving this one, again, a 10 out of 10. All right, next up we have Lee Daniels with The United States versus Billie Holiday, and I'm going to be completely honest, this one was a bit of a letdown. I mean, I don't remember reading much about Billie Holiday, but what I do, she is a wonderful historical figure. She has had a fascinating life. Her her song Strange Fruit has been described as the song of the century when it was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1978. And honestly... This movie did not do her justice. Everything is just... I don't want to make the movie sound like it's terrible. It's not. But when the but when you have a movie with the amount of resources that this movie had, and everything is just the bare minimum level of artistry, that's, that's a disappointment. The writing and the dialogue is stale. The pacing is uneven. It has all the biopic... It has all the trappings of like a biography film but it doesn't have any of the satisfaction that comes from that. I mean, every character other than Holiday feels very, very one-dimensional. I mean, again, story-wise, and this seems to be a theme at this point, I appreciate the fact that it shows how fixated the FBI was with harassing her, partially because they feared the sentiment that Strange Fruit could inspire in a nascent civil rights movement. Uh, They kept harassing her, trying to, like, you know, fuck up her career prospects because they caught her with heroin once and the charges wouldn't stick. Yeah, it's just, as I said, Billie Holiday, she really deserves a movie that's not this lackluster. And that's really the 
worst thing about it is that it's not terrible, but it's not good. It's kind of a slog to get through, honestly, which it's only like two hours 15. I've sat through movies that were almost twice that length, and I didn't feel boredom. But this one, I don't know, man. I hope that Billie Holiday gets a biopic at some point that does her justice. And I hope Andre Day, the, it's the actress playing her, I hope she gets some more roles in the near future because her performance is like the only thing that was a standout in this movie. She was wonderful as Billie. It's just a shame that the rest of the script didn't really live up to that. Uh, ultimately, like I said, it has all the tropes and trappings of a biopic, but it doesn't have any of the pleasure that comes with it. I'm giving this one a middling 6 out of 10. Alright, next up we have Oslo. Now, for this, a little background. Terje Larsen and his wife Mona Juhl were members of the Fafo Institute in Norway. It was a sort of political think tank, think tank or, or is. I think they're still around, actually. So, this takes place in... This is the events that led up to the 90, 1993 Oslo Accords, which I won't bore you with that, but they were very, very important. See, at the time, uh, Israeli officials were barred from even speaking to members of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, PLO. The PLO was in exile in Tunis, in Tunisia, and struggling financially because a... A number of Palestinian guest workers in a lot of other Arab countries had been expelled from said countries, and they couldn't make donations to the PLO anymore. So Fafo sought to conduct some back-channel negotiations to work around this. Uh, instead of Israeli officials, because again, Israeli officials couldn't speak to the PLO legally at this time, Israel was represented by two professors from a, I forget which university, but they were uh, professors from Israel. And a liaison and the finance secretary of the PLO came it, to represent their side of things. Now, this one, you know, you wouldn't think that like a movie about, you know, peace negotiations for a war that was already ongoing could be this tense, but it does have a very tense feel to it. And part of that is because that the first half of the movie, the negotiations are all still in the underground stage. Officially, they're not happening. Thing. Yasser Arafat for the PLO doesn't know. Yitzhak Rabin of Israel does not know. Hell, this is being hosted in Norway, and the Norwegian foreign minister, Holst, doesn't know. So, yeah, for all involved, this is a risky proposition. It takes until an hour in for the Israelis to actually give their official blessings to it. And part of the pacing is also broken up by scenes of the diplomats, you know, drinking, cordial informal conversations around the dinner table, some heartwarming moments, some good humor. It helps to, like, diffuse the tension, which was part of what happened in real life. The film's pacing is fairly good for something that is almost entirely dialogue uh, given the fact that it's about the lead-up to a fairly historic moment, if you have an interest in such topics to begin with, I think it will find a way to be interesting for you. 
I have not been able to determine how much of this is true to life, but the director of the movie and the man who wrote this for the stage originally are both good friends with Lawson anyway in real life. And a lot of this, remember, was happening happening unofficially. It was all under the table. So it would probably be difficult to obtain outside verification anyway. All the performances were great, and it's the best kind of film adaptation of a play, in my opinion. It retains the solid writing and staging of the play, but it uses the techniques of the film to enhance the viewer's experience. The only proviso is that it's a historical political thriller, and therefore I would say it's something of a niche subject. But all that being said, I do consider this worthy of a 9 out of 10. And finally, we have Godzilla vs. Kong. Uh, Alright, I'm going to say this. I loved Godzilla 2014. I loved Kong Skull Island. And I loved Godzilla King of the Monsters. This one, though, was just way too damn frustrating for me. Okay, for a start, no spoilers, but the title is incredibly misleading. They fight twice in a two-hour movie, and while both are incredibly well done, incredibly entertaining sequences, the second is not even the end of the movie. The actual plot of this movie, which gets treated like a subplot, is corporate fuckery trying to find a way to control the titans, as they're called. You know, the big, you know, Mothra, Ghidorah, Rodan, and then Godzilla and Kong themselves. So the daughter of director Russell, who died in the previous movie, and said daughter's schoolmate, enlists this almost comic relief conspiracy theorist podcaster who literally does nothing throughout the movie to advance the plot other than the fact that his whiskey flask he carries as a reminder of his dead wife, plays an important part at the end of the movie in a completely absurd way. And it gives, and other than that, it only, it only serves to give him some forced tragic backstory to make him relatable. Not to mention, in addition to generic evil businessman antagonist, for some reason, this guy is being aided by the son of Dr. Sarazawa from the previous films. The only slightly interesting characterization is the character of Eileen Andrews, a linguist working for the Monarch program who has adopted a young deaf girl named Jia from the Skull Island natives who I guess are just all extinct now for some reason. There's this bizarre aspect where the corporation is seeking to harness some power source from a hollow earth realm, which... Look, all of this was incredibly entertaining. Look, all the fight scenes were incredibly entertaining. The visuals were amazing. It's just that it is getting so ridiculous. I'm not going to say which movie, but this is much like a certain movie that is getting a sequel this winter. It is a movie with a token plot that gets stretched out as an excuse for admittedly wonderful effects and visuals. The actors are commended. They are to be commended for making this lackluster script work. It is a spectacle display, and it's little else. It does a good job of that, but it gets dragged down by a one-dimensional cast of characters that are really only to be appreciated because of their acting ability. It's not so terrible that I find it enjoyable, but it's a competently made movie in terms of technical aspects, so I'm giving it a 5 out of 10. That's all for this week. Uh, Join me next time. I'll probably have another dispatch out... Within a week, um, I'm, you know, I'm changing over jobs right now, so uh, 
personal things are going to be fucking up the schedule a little bit, but I'll have at least one more dispatch out soon and I'll be back on the 17th for a regular episode where we'll be talking about, again, Meeting Raul by Paul Bartel and Mary Warnoff. So until then, I'm signing off and take care. Bye.